I'd like to welcome our dear brother Ian Hamilton to come up this morning as he is going to be preaching the word to us. It seems a little silly to try to introduce him because I know so many of us know him and love him. We were privileged to have him open up the four servant songs over the weekend. So I'm coming this morning feeling very full and now ready to have him continue to preach to us from the book of Isaiah. Welcome, brother. We're glad you're here. Thank you. Well, it's always the greatest of privileges for me to be with you here in Sovereign Grace in Bakersfield, and I'm very grateful to you as a congregation for having me as regularly as you do. Joan and I love being with you. I have come across few more welcoming, delightful Christian people, brothers and sisters in Christ, so thank you so very, very much. I'd like to read in two places uh, this morning. First of all, in Isaiah 50, 62, verses 1 through 7, and then the opening verses in Luke chapter 18. My focus will be on verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 62. Let me just briefly set the context for you. The latter chapters of Isaiah from 40 through 66 are essentially predictive prophecy. God has told his wayward, disobedient covenant people, his church, that he is sending them into exile. The unthinkable is going to happen. What God promised would happen is, says God through Isaiah, going to happen. Exile. They would be uprooted from the land of promise. The temple would be destroyed. Everything that they had held dear for hundreds and hundreds of years, everything that seemed to signify and symbolize God's commitment to them was going to be obliterated. But in the latter chapters of Isaiah, God through his servant says to them that exile will not be his last word. It will not be his final word because God has pledged himself to his people. There will always be a remnant according to the election of grace. And in these especially final chapters in Isaiah from 60 to 66, we're given the most expansive of views concerning God's purposes for his church. Not only is he going to recover and restore his people to the land, he is ultimately going to do something grander and greater more unimaginably magnificent. He is going to make his people the centerpiece of the earth. He is going to so beautify his church that the nations will come to it and prostrate themselves before it. And so we read in Isaiah 62, 
For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. And then these, I'm sure, familiar words in Luke chapter 18. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? If I were to ask you this morning to describe Sovereign Grace Church in three words, I wonder what three words you might use. 
What three words do you think best describes this Christian congregation? Maybe you're thinking, well, we're a gospel church. We are a Bible teaching church. We're a mission-minded church. We are a welcoming church. We are a God-honoring church. We are a Christ-exalting church. And these would be, of course, wonderful descriptions of any congregation that claimed to be a true-hearted congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wonder if any of you had thought, this is how I would describe sovereign grace. We are a praying church. Did anyone have those words in their minds? We are a praying church. You can hardly read through the gospel narratives without being struck again and again and again and again by the priority that our Lord Jesus Christ gave to prayer. His whole life, his whole ministry was bathed in prayer. There were occasions when he spent the whole night in prayer. And of course, we have in John 17 recorded for us that glorious high priestly prayer of our Savior as he anticipated the approaching cross where he would give himself for the life of the world. His whole life was enshrouded in prayer, governed by prayer, inspired by prayer, impelled by prayer. And we see the same note in the early church. You can hardly read the opening chapters of the book of Acts without being made aware by Luke how central prayer was to the life of the infant church of Jesus Christ. Prayer wasn't supplemental. It was central. It wasn't peripheral. It was fundamental. You remember how in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 42, Luke tells us about the the great multitude who had come to faith in Jesus Christ through the Apostle Peter's preaching. And Luke gives us a, a beautifully concise and profoundly insightful description of the early church. He tells us they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to not prayer, but the prayers. It seems that the apostles had set apart uh, certain times in the week for the people of God to gather as opportunity allowed, to communally and corporately call upon the name of the Lord. And it reaches something of a climax, even a crescendo, in Acts chapter 6, when after this controversy that had arisen between the distribution of help between the Hebrew widows and the Grecian widows, that the apostles said, we need to set aside, set apart men 
filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, the two fundamental prerequisites for diaconal ministry, they need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be full of wisdom. But we will give ourselves to what? To prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, there may or there may not be significance in the fact that prayer precedes the ministry of the Word. I personally think that there is a profound significance in the order that Luke recounts for us, because the ministry of the Word without prayer will be lifeless. It will be inert. And the apostles understood that, that prayer was not to be supplemental. It was to be central and fundamental in their ministry as the apostles of Jesus Christ, ministering the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ to the people of God and to a lost world. We will give ourselves Not we will occasionally set time aside for, but we will give ourselves, devote ourselves. It's the language of religious commitment. We will devote ourselves. It will be a non-negotiable priority. We will give ourselves to these two things, to prayer And of course, it's corporate prayer that Luke is accenting to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Prayer lay at the very heart of the life of our Savior Jesus Christ and of His church. And here in Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7, we have the same emphasis highlighted at a significant moment in God's word to his people concerning their identity and their destiny. He has just told them in verses 1 through 5 that they will become a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. He has told them that the nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. All the nations will see your righteousness and all the kings of the earth will see your glory. Now that's a note that Isaiah had earlier highlighted, you may remember, in in chapter 2. Remember those great words that shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations will flow to it. All the nations. Or think of the great words that we read in Habakkuk chapter 2. The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that note of universal 
cosmic display traces its way back, you'll remember, to Genesis 12, and back actually even earlier to Genesis 3. But in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, you remember, from Ur of the Chaldees, and says to him, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham had been taken from a land of moon worshippers. And God says to this one man, in you, the whole earth is going to be blessed. And so what you have in these opening verses of Isaiah 62 is God saying to his people, you have a glorious future. You have an unimaginably glorious future. The nations shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory. Now, Israel is a little piece of real estate in the Near East. It's sandwiched between three great world empires, Assyria to the north, Babylon to the east, and Egypt to the south. And yet here is God the Lord saying to this people whom he will send into exile because of their sin, who will dismantle them to the edge of their existence. He's saying to them, one coming day, the kings of the earth will come and acknowledge you. Now, the question I want to ask this morning is this, how was that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Now, we know that this prophecy, this promise, refers to the church of Jesus Christ when we come to the new covenant scriptures and understand how the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the apostles interpreted and understood the language and the promises and the prophecies of the old covenant scriptures we see that the Lord is speaking here of his church. This is what Israel was. We are grafted into that covenant people, as Paul puts it in Romans 11. What we call the new covenant church is actually the one covenant church of Jesus Christ. We are grafted into Israel because there is always a remnant according to the election of grace. You are, says Peter, to the dispersed of God's people. You are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. He's, he's going to Exodus 19, and he's taking the language that immediately referred to the covenant theocratic people of God then and saying it applies to you because you are now shorn of the ceremonies and the types and the shadows. You are the people of God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But the question is, how is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Ian, that's a no-brainer. 
The Bible tells us how it's going to happen. Didn't the Lord Jesus Christ say, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Absolutely he did. The church is commissioned to be a going people. God has commanded his church to send out to the ends of the earth men and women to make known the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, of course, this will come to pass by men and women, boys and girls with them going. But there is something prior to that, isn't there? There's something prior to that. And that's why we read in Acts 6 verse 4, we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And this is what is being highlighted and accented here in verses 6 and 7 of our passage. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. Now clearly, the picture that's being painted for us is of God himself raising up men, probably prophets, perhaps priests with them, who will act as sentinels, who will be on the walls watching for enemies and exercising a protecting, guarding caring, shepherding ministry amongst God's people. I have set watchmen over you all the day and all the night. And then he says this, they shall never be silent. They shall never be silent. Do you know that until recently, People never read silently or prayed silently. That's a very modern phenomenon. It's only really in the last 200 years or so that people would read a book quietly into themselves. Prior to that, throughout the whole of history, people would read vocally. Vocally. And the idea that you would pray into yourself would have been thought exceedingly unusual. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's wrong to read quietly into yourself. I'm not saying it's wrong to, to pray quietly into yourself. All I'm saying is that prior to the last 200 years, the norm was you read out loud. I think it's a great way to learn. You read out loud. And you pray out loud. They shall never be silent. And what is being emphasized here is that these watchmen raised up by God will be relentless in their verbal care of the people of God. But what I want you to notice, especially with me this morning, is what follows. These watchmen, 
are to put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So back to our question. How will the Lord bring the nations of this world and the great ones of the earth to bow down before his people, to see in them the glory of the Lord? How will he do this? Principially, principially, by us relentlessly, continually, unfailingly, giving him no rest and giving ourselves no rest until he fulfills his promise to do what he has said he would do. Notice just four things very simply about the praying, for that really is what's to the fore here. Notice four things about the praying that's to characterize these watchmen. Now, these watchmen are those particularly whom the Lord sets apart for sentinel care and guardianship of his people. We can apply it to ourselves. They are the pastors and teachers whom the Lord has set apart and through the church has raised up to be his watchmen. But it doesn't exclusively apply to them. It may immediately apply to them, but not exclusively, because we all are prophets and priests to God in our union with Jesus Christ. One of the great truths recovered at the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. We're not passengers in a bus that's being driven by elders and uh, pastors. We're an orchestra. We all have a part to play. Certainly there is a conductor. Certainly there's the lead violin and um, the, the, the lead wind instrument. But we're all in this together. We are the orchestra of God. We are the body of Christ, to use the imagery and the language of the New Testament. And every part has a part to play. No one is peripheral. No one is redundant. So in a principial sense, this applies to your spiritual leaders whom you have set apart under God because they are men who exhibit, however poorly and weakly, those characteristics and gifts and character abilities that God would have demarcate and mark out those who are to model the headship and loving kindness and leadership of Jesus Christ in his church. Remember Calvin's words, pastors are to so lead the church of Jesus Christ that the people think it's Jesus himself who is leading them. But while it might immediately apply to them, it, it has a secondary yet real application to all of us. 
And just notice the four aspects of their praying. They are to pray continually. They are to pray continually all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. Prayer is not to be episodic. It's not to be part of merely the quiet time in the morning and the quiet time at night. It's not merely to be part of the church's gathering for prayer, whether it be a midweek or a Sunday evening or whenever. We are to pray all the day and all the night. Now, clearly that doesn't mean (laughs) that we do nothing else but pray. What the language means is that our whole life is to be dispositionally a life of prayer. And what I mean by that is that whether we are praying at a time set apart, morning, noon, night, or whenever, or whether we're walking along the street or at our place of business or whatever it may be, this to be an incipiently dispositional commitment to prayer. The same idea you find in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where where the Lord says through Moses to parents, you are to so nurture your children, teaching them the ways of the Lord as you walk along the road, as you lie down and sleep, as you go about the chores of life. And what, of course, he means is not that at every step of the way you stop and say, right, we've reached that question 33 in the Shorter Catechism. What about that? Or five minutes later, now we're at question 34. It doesn't mean that. It means the whole of your life is to breathe out to your children. The Lord our God is great and greatly to be praised. Let us join our hearts together, whether we're throwing a ball or hitting a ball, or whether we're having meals together, or fun together at the beach, we're saying by the disposition of our lives, the Lord our God, who is like unto him, children, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, he does great wonders. Who is like unto him? You don't need to be speaking the words But your life needs to be saying to your children, for me to live Christ. They need to see that you love to run after his commandments. That the whole of your life as a father, as a husband, as a a friend, as a brother, as an employer, as an employee, the whole of your life is shaped and styled infused and informed by who the Lord God is and what he has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. I've set watchmen all the day and all the night, and they shall never be silent. You know, we often say this, don't we, that some of the best sermons we have 
ever heard, we've actually never heard but seen. I was won to Christ, really, by a boy's life at school who told me later he would often speak to me about Jesus, and I don't remember him once speaking to me about Jesus, but I remember his life. I couldn't make sense of it. There was something about it that was different from any other life I'd ever encountered in my near 17 years. All the day and all the night, people need to see and our children need to see and the Lord needs to see that his church and his cause and his kingdom and his son are not valued compartments in our lives. They are our lives. For me to live Christ. They're to pray continually. They're to pray secondly, boldly. Notice, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. That's remarkable language, isn't it? We're to give God no rest. Lord, are you listening? Lord, are you listening? Wake up. You think, well, what sort of language is that? It's the language of the Psalms. Lose the Psalter and you lose religion. That's why we need to be singing the Psalms. And we need to know the Psalter. Do you know 40% of the Psalms, 40% of the Psalms are laments. 40 per- That's a huge proportion. 59, I think, of the 150 Psalms are laments. Why? Because there's so much to lament about in the life of faith. This world is a veil of tears. Yes, there are joys unspeakable and full of glory. Yes, we're being continually led in Christ's triumphal procession. But we're all limping, we're all struggling. We all have sadnesses and trials and burdens, fears. And the Psalms are bold in the way they call upon the Lord. You know, there are even some Psalms that say, Lord, are you sleeping? You think, well, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Don't you think the psalmist knew that? When he cries out, where are you? Does he not know that God is omniscient and is pledged in covenant love and loyalty to his people? Of course he does. But the exigencies of his circumstances cause his soul to cry out, where are you? Where are you? And it's the same boldness that We're being encouraged to pray. We're to give God no rest. Lord, here I am again. For the umpteenth time today, you know, our prayers don't need to be lengthy and detailed, although it's good to spend lengthy times in prayer. Our our prayers can be a little like Nehemiah chapter 1, shot up in an instant. Lord, there can be a universe of significance in simply saying, Lord, Lord. We give him no rest because we want the Lord to see 
that the extension of his kingdom and the extension of the gospel of Jesus Christ matter to us. Why do you think Jesus says in Matthew 7, Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. It's a present continuous tense. Keep on asking. Is God deaf? Is he indifferent? Of course he's not deaf. He's not indifferent. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. So why is Jesus saying, keep on asking? It's as if he's saying, show the heavenly father. That you're serious about this. That's what prayer in essence is about. Lord, I want to show you that I'm serious about this. We're to pray boldly. And we're to pray expectantly. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Not only are we to give the Lord no rest, we're to give ourselves no rest. But notice the connection here. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Now, Chad wonderfully last Sunday morning spoke about this. Um, God remembered Noah. But notice the language. What does this mean? You who put the Lord in remembrance. It's turning back to God, his promises. That's what prayer is, essentially. It's saying, Lord, you promised this. Now do it. Be pleased to do it. Honor your promise. Live up to your character and nature. Don't ungod yourself. It's covenant language, you see. He's he's, he's praying to Yahweh, you who put Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, in remembrance. In remembrance of what? That the nations shall see our righteousness and all the kings, your glory in us. Remember, Lord, you promised that. You promised that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Lord, you promised it. I want to remind you of your promise. I know you don't forget. I know you don't forget, but I want to remind you. The Bible uses extravagant language, and we shouldn't always try to qualify it. You know, truth can die the death of a thousand qualifications. Preach it as it is. You who put the Lord in remembrance. And it's, it's saying, Lord, we expect you to live up to your promises. We expect you to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of your Son as the waters cover the sea. You promised it. Do it. That's why we need to know the Scriptures. That's why we need to know the many exceeding great and precious promises so we can turn those promises into prayers. They were to pray continually. They were to pray boldly. They were to pray expectantly. And they were to pray 
till he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Prayer, calling out to the Lord, pleading his promises, was to be a note that would demarcate their identity as true watchmen of God. They would not give up. That's why we read in Luke 18 about the persistent widow. She just wouldn't give up. She just wouldn't give up. And the unjust judge gets to the point where he says, I'm just fed up with this widow. She just keeps coming to me and wearying me. She just won't let go. And then Jesus says, if that's what an unjust judge does, what about him who is the just judge? He will hear the cries of, their elect, of his elect. We ought always to pray and not give up. Jesus says at the beginning of Luke 18, we're not to let God go. A bit like Jacob, I will not let you go until you bless. Lord, we will not let you go until you bless. So how is the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? How will it be that nations will see the righteousness of God in the life of his people? And kings behold the glory of God in his people. Yes, by the church sending and the church going. And by you and, and I bearing witness as opportunity arises, seizing the moments. But if it's not undergirded by this kind of praying, and I'm talking not about individual praying or family praying. I hope you engage in family worship. I do, do hope you make family worship a priority. If, if you need help and you don't quite know how to go about it, speak, speak to your elders. I'm speaking here about the people of God communally and corporately, giving time, making time, People say, well, you know, I'm so busy. We've got this to do and that to do and the children to take here and the children to take there. If you're too busy, then you're too busy. Life is about priorities. Life is all about priorities. I remember as a very young Christian, An older Christian saying to me, just before I started university in Glasgow, Ian, you've got three priorities. He really should have said I had four, but he said three. Morning worship, evening worship, and whenever the church gathers for prayer. The fourth should have been, and work hard. I spent most of my time doing evangelism. I think my degree should not have been economic history, but economic history plus evangelism. Um, but I so thank God. Can't remember who it was that said it to me. But in all the Christians that I met at university and admired as a young believer with no background, every one of them, without exception, I think this is true, every one of them without exception, 
prioritized morning and evening worship and the corporate gathering of the church for prayer. The life of prayer is a bit like an iceberg. You know, one-eighth of the iceberg is above the water and seven-eighths is below it. The Christian life is like that. What really matters to God is what's beneath the surface. Robert Murray McChain, uh, one of the great, great ministers in the Church of Scotland in the 19th century, died aged 29, um, March 1843. He once wrote, What a man is on his knees before God, that's what he is and nothing more. You see, I wanted to begin the sermon this morning by saying this. This sermon is first for me before it's for you. I don't say that for effect. I say it because I mean it. What people see above the surface is not the real you. It's what's beneath the surface. And God alone sees that. And that's why we need in these days to recover again the centrality of prayer in the life of the church. We want to be like the New Testament church, then give yourselves devotedly to the prayers, to the times of prayer that the leadership of the church sets apart for communally and corporately calling upon the Lord. In Calvin's Geneva, every second Wednesday, I think, was set apart as a day of prayer. Prayer's hard. Prayer's demanding. Our minds go in 101 different directions. Maybe yours doesn't. I, I find myself in the midst of, of personal prayer or family prayer with Joan or in corporate prayer. I suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, I wonder what's for dinner today. Um, I, I, I wonder how Glasgow Celtic got on today. And you think, are you not a gospel minister, Ian? Only by the grace of God. Prayer is hard. It's what is called a work in the New Testament, a labor. Because in prayer, we are wrestling with principalities and powers. That's why at the end of Ephesians 6, after Paul has delineated, you'll remember, the the armor of God. And he, he makes this statement, doesn't he? He says, um, put on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. God raised up watchmen. Yes, pastors, teachers, they have a heavy responsibility. They will answer to God for their praying or their lack of it, as I will. But we are all watchmen and watchwomen. 
We all have a part to play. We're all in the orchestra. May the Lord give us a heart to pray and a will to carry it out. Let me pray. Lord, you have called us, commanded us, summoned us sweetly to lift up our hearts and voices to you in prayer. You could accomplish all that you purpose without one prayer from us. But you have mysteriously tied your purposes to the prayers of your people. You have mysteriously given weight to our praying. Not that our praying ultimately accomplishes anything. It is you, Lord, who does the accomplishing. But you have somehow, in some profound way, linked our praying to the execution of your eternal decrees and purposes in this world. So, Lord, we ask, make us by your grace a praying people. Make us, Lord, a people who will not let you go until you bless. Make us a people, Lord, who will pray until you make your church the praise of the whole earth. And we ask it all in our Savior Jesus Christ's name. Amen.